You know, it's easy to get lost and transported in some of the Old Testament stories. They're, they're exciting, and there's a lot of variety, and some of them have a lot of action. But I wonder if we really read these stories correctly. Are, are they really, are they just for our entertainment, or is there something more? This week's passage about Abram, we're going to go through chapters 13 and 14 in Genesis. They're really great because the stories here are exciting, and there are passages in the rest of Scripture that teach us how we're to understand what's going on here with Abram. So I hope one of the results of today's message is that um, you get an insight, maybe a new inspiration for how to read the Old Testament, Um, specifically how to understand how it points to Christ, how so many of these passages in the Old Testament are there for our benefit so that we would see Christ. But besides using today's passage as an example of how to do that, I'm excited about today's passage because there's really an amazing message in here. We're going to get a glimpse at a story that is in some ways bigger than any story that's ever written. It's the story about how God is working a cosmic plan in everything that happens, in all your relationships, in every promise that he makes to you, in everything that happens to you, there's a plan, there's a design. And it's for his purpose and it's for our good. But before we start, let's call upon the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would use weak vessels, even myself, Lord, to look into your scripture. And Lord, we look that for you to speak to us through your word. We look for your Holy Spirit to minister to us by what you've prepared for us in your scriptures. Be with us today as the word is preached. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just as a little bit of background, um, last week, Pastor Jonathan introduced us to Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis. And Jonathan shared how really some of the first things that God does with Abram is to promise him some things. He promises him three blessings. He promises him a place, a people, And he promises his presence. And each of those things, Abram was supposed to receive by faith. Now, although Jonathan didn't cover it last week, immediately after that, Abram and his whole family end up taking a detour in the land of Egypt. He was in Canaan, and God had promised him the land of Canaan, but there was a famine there. And so Abram and his family went to Egypt because they were hungry. They needed food. But while he was there, he kind of had some shady dealings. See, Abram was afraid that his wife, Sarai, who was so beautiful, would get the attention of the Egyptians. And maybe they'd they'd hurt him in order to get her for themselves. So he passed off his wife as his sister. And lo and behold, while he was in Egypt, the Egyptians did pay attention to her and It got so bad that Pharaoh took her into his palace and made her into one of his wives. Now, the good news for Abram was he got treated very well because they thought he was her brother, and he got lots of possessions. But as soon as Pharaoh found out that 
Sarai was really Abram's wife, not his sister, and that Pharaoh's whole household was being judged by God for what had gone on, Pharaoh kicked them out. He kicked the whole family out of Egypt. He said, leave. And so Abram and his family left with all those possessions that he had gained while he was in Egypt. So that brings us to our passages for today, chapters 13 and 14. Now, as we go through these, I want to warn you that I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself as we go through these passages. There's a bunch of different scenes, and the scenes are so interesting and so powerful that we're going to read them and let them speak to us. So I need to warn you, I I need you to hang with me as we go through these passages. And to help you, I've given you uh, some fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletins. And we're going to actually title each one of these scenes. And so I'm going to ask you to actually, to help stay awake through this, through this passage, to write out these titles. And so the title of the first scene that we're going to look at in chapter 13 is God Worked in Abram's Relationships. So we'll start with Abram's return to Canaan. And I'll read what uh, Diane just read for us in, in Genesis chapter 13, starting at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. So even though some of Abram's wealth and his possessions were acquired through some shady dealings in Egypt, God continued to bless Abram and his family. He had livestock, he had silver, he had gold, he was back in the land that he was promised. But everything wasn't quite perfect in all this prosperity. Verse 5, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, had also flocks and herds and tents, But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So here we find out that Abram's nephew Lot was also getting wealthy. He was also getting lots of possessions. He had flocks, he had herds, he had tents. And not only were Abram and Lot there, but there were these other tribes who were there before them. They probably had already staked out the best lands to graze their their animals, the the best watering holes. The demands of all this prosperity was so great that there was a quarrel that was happening between Abram's workers and Lot's workers. It's kind of strange. God's own blessing turned into a source of division between Abram and his nephew Lot. So what does Abram do? Well, he gives Lot the choice of how to resolve this. Verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. It's strange. Abram offers Lot the choice of what land to take. It's weird because in the previous chapter, in chapter 12, God had promised Abram all this land. Abram could have said, 
you know, God promised me all of this. Lot, why don't you just move along? This is mine. But that's not what he did. He let Lot choose. Why did he do that? Maybe it's because Abram learned a lesson in Egypt about doing things his own way. Maybe he didn't want to choose or decide because he felt bad about what had happened in Egypt. Or maybe Abram was so confident in God's promises that it didn't matter what what Lot chose. Abram was confident that God would bless him. Well, whatever it was, Lot was given the choice, and he looks around and he decides. Verse 10, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Lot decided to settle in the plain. He went where the cities were. Now, Lot might not have known it, but by deciding to go to the plain, deciding to go where the cities were, he was getting dangerously close to wickedness. Outside appearances can be deceiving. It might look like a beautiful land to be in, but it may not turn out so great for Lot. In fact, it was probably the worst decision Lot ever made. Now, before we leave this scene and move on to the next one, I just want to point out there's a bit of drama that's in here. It's almost as if God is orchestrating all of the events, Abram's prosperity, Lot's prosperity, the conflict, the decision that has to be made, where Lot ends up, where Abram ends up. It's it's like God is working behind the scenes for some conclusion. But what is that? Well, let's press on. One of the consequences of the separation between Abram and Lot is that God used this time to confirm with Abram and get his attention on what God had promised him. This is the second scene, and we're going to give it a title. We're going to call this, God Confirmed His Promise to Abram, or His Promises, as it's written back there. Genesis 13, 14 through 15. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now God had promised Abram this land back in chapter 12. It was the first promise. But now he asks Abram to remember this promise, to look at it. In fact, in verse 17, he asks Abram to go and walk through the land and claim it. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. God also deepened his promise to Abram by detailing how numerous his offsprings would be. Back up to verse 16. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Now, I had to look it up, but there's a lot of dust in the earth. In an average space like this, where there's not special filters or special air conditioning, 
For every cubic foot of air, there's three million dust particles. Three million in every little square like this, cube like this. Imagine the size of this promise to Abram. Your offspring will be like the dust. That's a lot of dust. That's a lot of offspring. This is an incredible promise to Abram. So what does he do? How does he respond to God's promise? Well, he did exactly like he did in chapter 12. He worshiped. Verse 18. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. His response to God's promise was worship. All right, well, now the scene is going to shift again, and we're going to move into chapter 14. This third scene is pretty exciting. We're going to call it God blessed Abram in battle. Now, because there's so many unfamiliar names, it's easy to get lost in the story. So I'm going to summarize it for us. The big picture is there's these four strong kings, and they're led by this guy called Kurdo-Leomer of Elam. Now, these four strong kings, they're bullies. They're strong. It says that there are five other kings also in the land, and they're subject to Kurdo-Leomer and his, and, his, and his friends. But those five weaker kings who are subjected, they decide they've had enough. They're going to rebel. And that's what it says in verse 4 of chapter 14. For 12 years they had been subject to Kurdo-Leomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that the five weaker kings decided to stop paying tribute, to stop paying taxes. Now, in America, we know what happens when you stop paying taxes. It gets the attention of the person to whom taxes are owed. Well, that's what happens here. The four strong kings led by Kurdo-Leomer, they start a new round of raids against all their neighbors. And they start proving that they're really strong. I won't read verses 5 through 7, but it's a who's who of local tribes, of local kingdoms, that these, that these four strong kings are conquering. They go here and conquer this tribe. They go there and conquer this other tribe. They are so strong, they're able to wipe out all their neighbors. Now, what about those five weaker kings who had decided to stop paying taxes? What were they going to do? Well, that's what happens in verse 8. They decide they have to put up a fight. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 14. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kurdoliomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Ampharaphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So you've got... The four strong ones and the five weak ones. So there's going to be this big battle. This is the setup. It's really the first description of warfare in the Bible. This is going to be exciting, right? This is going to be something new. We haven't seen this in Scripture before. Do the five underdogs, do they have a chance against those four strong kings? Well, here's another funny thing. We get hardly any description about the battle at all. All we find out is that the five weak kings, they run away. Genesis 14, 10. 
Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into, the, fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four strong kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. So as the result of this battle between nine kings of the cities in the plain, the defenders, the five weaker kings, they're forced to flee. Some, some end up stuck in the tar pits, some go to the hills. The four strong kings take their possessions as the five weak kings run away. You know, the battle is almost insignificant compared to the main point. The main point is that Lot gets messed up in this and he's captured. He's captured by those four strong kings. He had settled near Sodom, and when Sodom got defeated, he got snatched up, along with all the goods from Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abram gets news about this, and as soon as he hears the news about the trouble that his nephew is in, he responds to it immediately. Verse 14, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and all the other people. Amazingly, Abram rescued Lot from the, from the four strong kings. And in the process, he recovered a whole bunch of possessions from Sodom. It's like when Abram, when Abram was chasing after the four strong kings, the four strong kings who used to be on the attack, they're suddenly on the defense. And as they start running away, they start dropping all the goods that they had collected. You could just imagine this. One guy's carrying a whole bunch of sheep that he collected in the raids, and he's slow, and he sees Abram and his troops following, and he's like, well, forget that. I'm letting the sheep go. Another guy's got a big bag of money, and he's trying to run away, but it's heavy, and he sees Abram and his, and his troops behind him, and he decides he's going to drop that. Eventually, whoever was responsible for Lot and his family, who had captured them, they dropped them as well. And so Abram was able to collect all those goods, that's what the picture is in the back of Abram rescuing Lot and his family. Now, it's, it's strange because we never think of Abram as a military leader. But here we see that he and his household trained men, the 318, they're able to stand up and defeat the strongest kings of the area, the biggest bullies of Canaan. How can that be? It must be that Abram is blessed by God, that God is confirming his promises to him, even giving him victory and allowing him to rescue Lot. So what happens next? What's the next scene? Abram had, Abram had defeated Kurdolaomer. He got back Lot and his family. And this naturally gets the attention of the kings who were formerly defeated. Genesis 14, starting at verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kurdolaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Skipping ahead a few verses, we see the king of Sodom offers to Abram to keep the goods that Abram collected. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abram's response is the strangest ever. He refuses. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With a raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. I will accept nothing that belongs to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Why would Abram refuse the spoils of this battle? I mentioned before that back in chapter 12, when he was in Egypt, Abram had no problem collecting all these extra goods from Pharaoh. Abram has a different response this time. It seems he wants to make it clear that the Lord should get the glory for his victory, so he turns down Sodom's offer. You can imagine this must have been a real slap in the face to Sodom. Sodom had offered, the king of Sodom had offered him all these goods, and Abram said, nope, you can take it all back. So this fourth scene is really about how Abram trusted in God's riches, not in man's riches, not in Sodom's riches. So that's the title we'll give to that, to that fourth scene. Abram trusted in God's riches. So I've reviewed most of the story from chapter 13 and 14, from these two chapters, and it's interesting if you like action, and if you like history, maybe a good story. A typical question that people ask when they come to the Bible is, what does it mean? What do I do with this? So let's ask that question of this, of this text, of these passages. But let's be really careful to consider who we are when we ask this question. First, let's think about the, the people of Israel who were reading this, maybe for the first time. Now, we know that Moses wrote Genesis for the people of Israel. What would they have understood from this set of stories? Let me summarize it. Let's see. Father Abram was good. He was chosen and blessed by God, despite all the wickedness around him. He was rich, which is a blessing from God. He worshipped. He was wise and generous, dealing with his nephew Lot when they were more than the land could handle. He received God's promise about his offspring. He rescued his neighbor, his nephew Lot, even though Lot was the one who made the choice to go near Sodom in the first place. And he righteously didn't accept any of the spoils from Sodom. If we think about how an early Israelite would have read these stories, I think the message is pretty clear. As sons and daughters of Abram, we should recognize that whatever, whatever riches we have, they're also a blessing from God. Like Abram, we should worship. Like Abram, we should be wise and generous with our families and our, our, our close relations and our neighbors. Like Abram, we should trust in God's promises. Like Abram, we should be brave and fight for the land, fight for our families. And like Abram, upon victory, we should give glory to God, not trust in the spoils from outsiders. It's pretty simple, right? Makes sense? Now, that's a fine reading of the text, but is there more? Well, there's a key part of the story that I kind of skipped over, and I think it helps tie things together. Before Abram refused Lot's offer of all the goods, 
there's an additional scene. It almost seems like it was just kind of injected in there. It, it seems almost out of place. It's another scene, and we're going to give it a title right away. We're going to call it Melchizedek Blessed Abram. It's at verse 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram's greeted by this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. What do we know about him? Almost nothing. We don't get any information about his ancestry, who his parents were, how old he is, how long he lived. All we're told is he's the king of Salem, he's a priest of the God Most High, and he blesses Abraham. Abram. He gives him food and wine, which is probably really helpful for Abram's tired troops. And he acknowledges that God is the source of Abram's victory. And Abram responds and gives him a tenth, a tithe. What is this about? It says Melchizedek was a king and a priest. What's going on here? Well, we've got to go to another part of the Bible to get an explanation of this passage. We're going to go to Psalm 110, which we read together responsively with the worship team. Psalm 110 is one of King David's psalms. You can turn to it. It was written about 500 years after all these stories in Genesis were written down. And it references this strange mystery figure, Melchizedek. And it does so to make an important point. I'm going to read this psalm, and you can please follow along. As you look in your Bibles, you'll see that it talks about the Lord with all caps. That's God's holy name, Yahweh. And it talks about another Lord. And to keep those distinct, I'm just going to, make a, uh, I'm just going to pronounce them kind of as they were written there. I'm going to say Yahweh for the big capital Lord, and I'm going to say Lord King for the little Lord. So the psalm goes like this, Psalm 110, of David. Yahweh says to my Lord King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. My Lord King is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the days of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. You know, of all the Old Testament passage, this psalm, verses from here, are the ones that are quoted the most times in the New Testament. There's something key about this passage. I won't spend an entire set of sermons on it, but I'm going to make three quick points. The first is, this psalm, Psalm 110, is about the coming Messiah, the promised one. We know this psalm is not about David because we know that David wrote it. It says, of David. That's in the actual text of the psalm. And David must be writing not about himself as the king of Israel, but about some future king that's to come. 
Yahweh says to my Lord King. David is writing about God speaking to David's king. Who is this king? It's the future king that's to come. Well, what about this future king? What's he going to be like? What's this Messiah going to be like? We have two important points in the psalm. In verse 1, Yahweh says that this future coming king will sit at God's right hand. It's said again like that in verse 5. The Lord King is at your right hand. This is unbelievable language about this future coming king, this future Messiah. What kind of person could be sitting at God's right hand, the place of honor? It says he's going to crush the nations. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to crush other rulers. This coming Messiah is going to be greater than any other king. It's like he's going to be a king of kings. You can see where this is going. Third point. The third point is in that verse 4 that connects back to our friend Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever out of the order of Melchizedek. God is describing that this coming Messiah is going to be not only a king, but he's going to be a priest at the same time. This is something unheard of for the people of Israel, the people of David's time. A lord, a king, is one who rules, someone who who, who, who leads people into battle. A priest, on the other hand, is someone who intercedes, who prays, who goes before God on behalf of you. This coming king, this coming Messiah, is going to be both a king and a priest. And, and as a priest, this Messiah will not be like any human priest. It says he will be a priest forever. He's going to be eternal So just like Melchizedek was the only combined Old Testament king and priest, Messiah will be a unique combined king-priest. Well, from this quick reading of Psalm 110, that's helpful. That helps us understand that Melchizedek is an important pattern, an important figure. We learn that this coming Messiah will be a victorious king, a priest, patterned after this mysterious Melchizedek, and he'll serve forever at God's right hand. That's helpful, but the Bible is not yet done explaining what the importance of Melchizedek is. There's one more piece to the puzzle to those passages in Genesis, and that's in the book of Hebrews. We looked at it a little bit last week. The book of Hebrews was written in the New Testament a thousand years after David wrote his song. Fifteen hundred years after the events that were written down about Melchizedek in Genesis. The letter to the Hebrews is a 13-chapter sermon. It's hard to read, but I encourage you to look at it. It's It's a sermon, probably a much better sermon than this one, but it's brilliant. The author there makes the argument that Jesus is better than anything, better than angels, better than Abraham, better than Moses, And one of the ways the author explains who Jesus is, is he refers back to this Melchizedek. The author points out Melchizedek was a unique figure. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. He has no ancestry in Genesis. He has no father, no mother, no beginning, no end. He's kind of like the son of God appearing from outside humanity. 
And he received a tithe from Abram, demonstrating that he was more important than Abram. In Hebrews, the author points out that Jesus is like the pattern of Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Jesus is a priest forever. He's eternal. He is a priest by God's oath, by God's promise, not by how he was born. He's a priest who can intercede for us forever. The author of Hebrews explains that Jesus is the high priest that we need. And he quotes from Psalm 110 to explain it. We'll cover just one small passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 7, verses 22 through 28. Let me read it. Hebrews 7, 22 to 28. Because of this oath, that is, the Lord has sworn you are a priest forever, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there's been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath, what God promised, which came after the law, appointed the Son who's been made perfect forever. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is holy, he's blameless, he's pure, he's set apart from sinners, he's exalted above the heavens, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, but he sacrificed himself once for all. He's the mediator of a new covenant, a new promise. He died as a ransom to set us free from sin. In the pattern of Melchizedek, Jesus is our perfect priest and king. The story of Melchizedek, which was written more than 2,000 years before Jesus' coming, was a lesson for us to understand what Jesus was going to be like and to understand how Jesus is now. So how do we wrap this up? God has been writing a story for us. It's been taking 2,000 years to put this story together so that we could understand his perfect plan about Jesus. God has a perfect sovereign design to all of history. Just think about back in Genesis. We read about Abram's prosperity, the conflict between Abram and Lot, Lot's choice of where to live, the war of the nine kings, Abram's Lot being captured, Abram's rescue mission, Melchizedek's arrival to bless Abram, Abram's ability to refuse Sodom and instead rely on God, David prophesying about this future king being like Melchizedek, Jesus coming in the flesh, living a perfect life, offering his life for us as a sacrifice, and the author of Hebrews connecting all the dots between Melchizedek, King David, Psalm 110, Jesus' life, and how Jesus is our high priest, our perfect high priest. All these steps are part of one connected story. It's like a tapestry. It's breathtaking. It's bigger than any story ever written. 
It's bigger than the Lord of the Rings. It's bigger than the Star Wars series. It's bigger than the Avengers. I got excited when Nick Fury showed up in film after film before the Avengers to to group them. This is bigger than that because this was written over the span of 2,000 years to teach us about Jesus so that we could have confidence in God's plan and so that we could put in our, our trust in Jesus, our King, our Priest. So what do we do with this? What what do we do with this today? There's a grand design. It's God's design, and it's being played out in history, in everything that happens, in the election that's happening in the United States, right, in the next few months. And this design is being played out in your life also. Everything that happens to you, for good or for bad, if you got to church late today, if your car broke down, if you lost your job, if you got a promotion, if you had an argument with your spouse, if you got a diagnosis of a terminal disease. Everything is part of God's sovereign design, his sovereign plan. And like the conflict between Abram and Lot, everything has a purpose to advance the story one step further. We might not see it in our lifetime. Like these three passages that introduce Melchizedek, it may take 2,000 years before the plot of your life becomes perfectly clear. But they're clues, just like Abram had clues. The big idea of today's sermon is that God's eternal cosmic plan centers on Jesus, our King, our priest. It's a plan that spans all of history. If someone asks you, what's the Bible all about? Tell them it's the story of Jesus written out over thousands of years. And it's a good news story for us. What's God saying to you right now in the things that are happening to you right now, the good things and the bad things? God's eternal cosmic plan, all of history, it centers on Jesus, our King, our priest. How do you respond to that plan? Are you going to respond to this in worship? Are you going to submit to King Jesus, embrace him, call him your own, put your faith and trust in him? Are you going to accept the high priest, King Jesus, who promises to pray for you to the Father forever? He's praying right now, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, praying that your sins are covered on behalf of the sacrifice that he offered once and for all. He took your punishment and you get his righteousness. And he's there at the Father's right hand reminding him right now about you. God's eternal cosmic plan centers on Jesus, our king, our priest. Abram's response to God's plan and his promise was to worship. Let us respond in prayer, in worship, and the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the cosmic drama that's played out. We thank you how it reveals Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. We thank you for your church that has lasted through the centuries to preach your word, to celebrate these ordinances like the Lord's Supper and baptism. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, that you would plant your word deep in our lives and that we would respond in worship to this great, 
eternal cosmic plan that you revealed to us in your word and that our response would be worship and praise. Be with us as we continue in worship. As the offering is collected, Lord, would you bless the giver and the gift that it would be used to advance your kingdom. In all this, we pray in the name of our strong high priest, our King, our Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.